Today on the Matt Wall Show, a mother writes an article for the New York Times confessing that she has intentionally traumatized her young children over COVID, and she doesn't appear to be sorry about it. Also, five headlines, including the start of Trump's impeachment trial. A school system in Maryland hopes to make its students safer by defunding the school resource officers. And the mayor of Tampa pledges to hunt down anyone who celebrated the Super Bowl without a mask. She's going to find them and make them pay. And I'll cancel another TikToker. Always fun. Plus, I'll read my YouTube comments and much more today on the Matt Wall Show. You know, a good night's sleep without a good pillow is, it's just not a thing. It doesn't exist. It's like trying to, it's like a, it's like a good sandwich with stale bread. It doesn't exist. A lot of people don't understand that the, the, the bread is the star of the sandwich and it really comes down to the, to the bread most of but that's not the point. Anyway, um, my pillow is the point. When it comes to sleep, you're not going to get a good night's sleep unless you have a nice pillow. And uh, my pillow products, they really, they really are just, it's, it's a great pillow. I, I, I mean that sincerely. I don't know how else to put it to you. Just buy the pillow and try for yourself. They don't go flat. You can wash and dry them as many times as you want, and they maintain their shape. And best of all, they're made in the USA. Um, if you don't have a my pillow, now's the time to try one. And it's not like any other pillow that you've had. You might you might think, ah, oh, pillow's a pillow. How special can it be? Well, you haven't tried a my pillow yet. Uh, so if you haven't had one, or if you know someone who hasn't tried my pillow, now is the time to get one. Because for a limited time, MyPillow is offering their premium MyPillows for their lowest price ever. You can get a queen-size premium MyPillow regularly, $69.98 for only $29.98. That's 40 bucks in savings. And kings are only $5 more. So this is the savings you can get. Now is the time to buy. You don't want to wait until they're back up at full price. Not only are you getting the lowest price ever, but they're the best gifts ever. Uh, we, we do have Valentine's Day coming up right around the corner. You might want to think about getting your, um, getting your, your sweetheart a pillow. Uh, $29.98 for a queen-size premium MyPillow. Buy now, and they'll extend the 60-day money-back guarantee to March 1st, 2021. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener square. There you'll find not only this amazing offer, but also deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the Giza Dream Bed Sheets, the MyPillow Mattress Topper, and MyPillow Towel Sets, all, uh, all of that you can get right now. All you have to do is call 800-651-1148 and use promo code DAILYWIRE. A recent article in the New York Times encapsulates in the very first sentence one of the great problems with how our society has chosen to deal with the coronavirus. It's a problem I've talked about a lot on this show, except written by someone who does not seem to see it as a problem. The author, Courtney Zoffness, writes in the first sentence, quote, I have spent the past 11 months filling my children with fear, with fear. What follows is a long, paranoid diary entry presented for public consumption for whatever reason, all revolving around Courtney Zoffness's attempts to grapple with her six-year-old son's recent positive coronavirus test result. Now, we should note at the outset that her son is not seriously ill, okay? Uh, very few children his age, thankfully, thank God, have been made seriously ill by the virus. She says that he is asymptomatic, in fact. But this does not calm her fears. Fears for her own safety not his. She explains that she has hammered the dangers of the coronavirus into both of her children's heads. Her two sons, ages six and nine, know, quote, what the coronavirus is and how it infects and how many people have died and continue to die daily in the United States. So her six and nine-year-old kids know, they know the number of people dying every day of the virus. She's satisfied that, quote, he gets it, which is why she proudly reports, he, quote, washes his hands so often that his knuckles have turned red and raw. Yet, he still got sick. Well, not really sick, but COVID positive anyway. Her description of receiving the bad news reads like something, I mean, it really reads like something that a parent of a child with cancer might have written. This is what she says. He doesn't believe me at first. I hardly believe me. It's January 21st, barely 7 a.m. Maybe it's all a dream. My son looks from me to his father, then back again. He had the most reliable tests. His brother, his older brother, cups his hands over his mouth in disbelief. How, my son says, voice wobbly. I don't want to have COVID, he cries. Will I die, he says. Will you? Now, she, she doesn't tell us how she answered that question, but the correct answer is, no, son, you will not die. And neither will I. Everything's going to be fine. You're going to be fine. Everything's okay. Here. Let's, here's some ice cream. That's the correct answer to a six-year-old in this situation. Now, 
That would be the correct answer to give a child even if he was seriously sick. But he's not. So comfort and reassurance should be very easily and quickly provided. It just doesn't sound like this poor kid got either of those things uh, from this woman, though. She continues, I had wanted my children to be afraid of this virus so that they'd be protected, so that our family and the community and the world would be too. But I am also preternaturally anxious, somebody who relies on therapy and medication to breathe evenly. My children have seen me distraught over seven-day averages and incautious loved ones and an immoral president who helped accelerate the spread. The size of my son's sob is proportional to the extra-large apprehension I sowed into him for 11 months. How can this be unraveled? Well, it can be unraveled, Courtney, all the efforts that you've made um, to protect him. It can be unraveled because we are facing a virus, you know, not a horde of Vikings. So you can't dig a moat and bolt the doors and expect to keep the virus out. Well, I mean, you can, I guess. And as long as you stay in your fortress, the virus probably won't get you. But 11 months is a long time to stay locked away. You're going to have to go out into society, into society, and so will your child. And the virus will be there when you emerge, as you have discovered. This is why cultivating fear in your child will do nothing to protect him. Fear just makes more fear. Fear begets fear. That's all it does. He is still just as likely or unlikely to get sick. All you've ensured is that if and when he does get sick, he'll be scared to death. Now, Zofnis says that she isolated her sick child after the, uh, the positive result. She isolated him in the house, had him wear a, apparently had him wear a mask inside the house, and she wore one inside the house, wouldn't go near him for presumably multiple days. She admits that she's not scared for him, but of him. Her concern, again, is for her own safety, not his. She says, quote, but it occurs to me now that we're not actually so worried about him suffering physically or even, heaven forbid, dying. We're worried about the adults he might infect. We are worried about each other. This is the reason they keep their scared, confused little boy locked away, isolated from the rest of the members of the family. They give him an area of the house to himself, a folding table to attend remote school. He's like a prisoner in his home. Though it seems, you know, that's not a major change from how he's been forced to live over the past year. The only difference now is that his mother is treating him like a leper, rather than simply treating the rest of humanity like lepers and teaching him to do the same. The article ends on a note that couldn't possibly ring more hollow. She says, I can't promise that I exuded calm in the moment my youngest reached out to me as much as I wanted to, tried to. But what I could supply without pretense was comfort. Comfort? If this is comfort, Courtney, I'd hate to see what you'd do if you were trying to traumatize the poor kid. Now, as far as we know, um, speaking in my own family, and as I'm reading this and thinking about our own experiences, as far as we know, in my family, COVID has not hit our house yet, unless it did and we were asymptomatic, as most people are when they get it. But as far as we know, it hasn't. But my wife and I have have always understood and accepted that if somebody in the house gets sick, we're all probably going to get sick. It's just probably what's going to happen. Sure, you know, if one of the adults gets it, we'll do our best to isolate because we can do that as adults. That's a sacrifice that uh, we can make. I got the flu back last February, really bad case of it. Well, I thought it was the flu. Maybe it wasn't, as it turns out. But um, anyway, I spent three or four days basically locked in a in our room, very sick. I didn't want to get the kids sick, and so that's what I did. I'm an adult. I can do that. That's the sacrifice that I can make. A sacrifice my, my wife had to make as well. She's caring for the kids all that time. But if a child gets it, and this is what my wife and I have understood, if one of the kids gets it, there, there's no way in hell we're confining them like death row inmates for a week and a half. And I'm not going to refuse to go near my own child. I'm just not going to do that. I would rather get COVID. I would much rather get COVID than treat my children that way. If my son is scared and traumatized, he thinks he's going to die and he's, and he's, being, and he's isolated, and, and he, I, I would rather go give him comfort personally and just get COVID myself. That's what I would rather do. Protecting our children's psychological well-being, providing them comfort and assurance, being there for them emotionally and physically, that matters. I mean, it matters a lot. It matters so much that it's worth getting sick to do. It matters more than our own physical safety. Especially when the threat to our physical safety as parents of young children 
which presumably means, you know, if you're a parent of a, of a young child, you're probably under 50 years old at least, which means the threat to your physical safety from COVID is probably minimal. Um, or it's certainly not as high as it is for other groups, I will say. This article is an extreme example, perhaps, but it, it, it represents a trend, a common thread that we've seen present itself throughout the last year. Adults who are so scared for their own safety, so distraught about their own situation that they willingly pull their own children into their paranoia. I mean, it is appalling and weak and selfish and disgraceful. All notions of dignity, of courage and strength have just been abandoned all at once. Now, I've... I've um, I shouldn't say all at once. We've been abandoning those things in this culture for a long time, but this has accelerated the process. I've mentioned, I think, once before on this podcast a long time a long time ago, a story recounted by Solzhenitsyn in the first volume of his Gulag Archipelago, which is a memoir slash history book about the labor camp system in the Soviet Union. A great book that you should read. In fact, it's three books. It's three three volumes. But he tells a story, I think, in the first volume about a guy named Osorgin who was in a prison camp. And... On the day his wife was headed to visit him, he found out that it was his turn to be brought before the firing squad and killed. But he wanted to see his wife one last time, and, and he didn't want her to come to the prison camp only to discover that he'd already died. So um, he begged the guards to hold off on the execution just so that he could give his wife this last visit. I mean, it was really something he did for her because he's going to be dead. So this is really something he wants his wife to have that, those last moments with him. They agreed to allow him to do this, but the deal was that he couldn't tell her that he was about to die. Couldn't tell her. Violating this rule, you can imagine, in the Soviet Union would have put his wife in danger. Because as the family of a person in, in prison in the Soviet Union, you weren't allowed to know what's going on with them. And if you found out, then now you're a, a national security risk too. So he agreed. Uh, and she visited. And he spent three days with her, morning, noon, and night never once hinted, never indicated that he was in his last moments of life. And when the time came for her to leave, said goodbye, she boarded the boat, and he got undressed and went off to be shot. Now think about the extreme self-control, the courage, the dignity, the strength, the love for his wife that was required to keep his own upcoming demise to himself and spend time with her without mentioning it. So I think about that story a lot, especially recently. As so many adults, parents, spouses now, cannot even deal with the extremely unlikely chance that maybe they get sick and maybe become one of the unlucky ones and get seriously sick and maybe even die. It's not a likely occurrence. But they can't deal with that. So many adults with no strength, no courage, no dignity, who have let this fear overwhelm them to the point that they offload it even on their own young children. I can't imagine doing that to my kids. My kids went like six months and didn't, hadn't even heard the word COVID. They didn't even know what it was. And now they, they're familiar with the, the word. They've heard it, but uh, it's, they're, they're not overcome with fear. They're not paranoid about it at all because I'm not going to put that on them. I just think if these people were, were in, say, a Sorgan's position, they would have collapsed into tears and spilled the beans 15 seconds after their wife arrived. And then she'd be in front of the firing line, too. This inability to keep things in perspective, this overriding paranoia fueled by selfishness and cowardice, this failure to protect children, protect them mentally and emotionally, this damage that we're doing to the youngest generation because we're scared and feel helpless this is all what will define our present moment in history. I wish I could say it'll be defined by our resilience and strength and all of that good American stuff. But the really tough truth is that we're just not that kind of country anymore. Let's get to our five headlines. All right, so there's the, you know this debate about... Um, who's the greatest athlete ever in history now that's it's people having this debate on online and they're having on ESPN who's it's 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 really a, a silly debate because you're you know you're comparing across sports and across generations it's it's really kind of stupid was babe ruth 
better than Tom Brady? What? Um, but I don't know. It's, it's still interesting. And, and really, part of the fun of being a sports fan is to have completely pointless debates like this. If you enjoy having pointless, frivolous debates and you're not a sports fan, you should be. That's one of the reasons that I am. Because I, that's, that's what I love to do, debate things that don't matter. Uh, it's what I've dedicated my life to, in fact. So this has been the debate. And, uh, you know, I, I, I tend to side with the people who say that the best athlete in history, or, you know, if we're talking modern history, probably would have to be somebody in an individual sport. I mean, Tom Brady, obviously, is the best football player of all time. Uh, there's really no debating that. But Michael Phelps, individual sport, all on his own, in the water, swimming. He's got 23 gold medals. Second place in history has nine. Okay, he got almost that many in one Olympics. He's got how many total medals does he have? Like 28, 30, something like that. And he's competing against the entire world. And I think, you know, they started counting gold medals like in the in 1900 or something. So going back 120 years. 120 years of history, the entire world, and he's got 23 gold medals in second place is nine. I think probably that's the argument for. Other people are saying somebody like Serena Williams. If you look at the way that she's dominated the field, the only thing about the, the only thing I'll say about that, I don't, I don't mean this in a sexist way, but um, she can't be the greatest athlete in history because she's competing against girls. No offense. And remember, if I say no offense, then you're not allowed to be offended by it. But that's also the I, I think we know it's like the greatest athlete in history, obviously, is at least a man. That's to begin with. And then you can go from there. I'm sure that'll be an uncontroversial statement. We can all agree. All right. Um, moving on. Headlines. Number one. Trump's Senate impeachment trial starts today. Um, I'm as uninterested in this impeachment as I was in the last one. And that's pretty much the end of my analysis of it. So instead, I think number one will be this. I want to start with, with this, actually. The mayor of Tampa says that she's, she is hunting down and uh, looking for the evildoers who didn't wear a mask while celebrating the Super Bowl win. So she's like Liam Neeson in Taken, and she will find you. And she'll make you pay. But uh, here she is. Let's listen. Everyone knows that simply wearing a mask dramatically reduces the spread of COVID-19. And I'm proud to say that the majority of individuals that I saw uh, out and about enjoying the festivities associated with the Super Bowl were complying. You know, we, we had tens of thousands of people all over the city downtown, out by the stadium, Ybor City, uh, down here in Channel Side, and very, very few incidents. So I'm proud of our community, but uh, those few bad actors uh, will be identified and the Tampa Police Department will handle it. There just has to be that level of personal responsibility. You can supply everyone with a mask, advise them of the science behind it, and expect that they are going to to abide by the mask order. Again, you're going to find a few that don't. The majority that I saw were wearing masks. It's going to be really awkward when they arrest Tom Brady um, because he was not wearing a mask. A lot of people weren't wearing a mask, actually, both when they were competing in the game, but also afterwards during the Super Bowl, the celebration, the ceremony on the field. So you can arrest all them. Something tells me not. Yeah, so they're going to be looking at, at surveillance footage to go and track down the people who weren't wearing a mask. So what we've learned in America is that if you go out with a crowd and burn down a police station, uh, loot a, a Walmart, um, you know, assault random pedestrians, set a cop car on fire, throw Molotov cocktails at police officers, throw rocks at, at, uh, at, through people's windows. If you do that, then they're not going to bother with, you know, it's... To look at the security camera, go find people, that takes a lot of work. It's not a big deal anyway. All you did was burn down a police station. Um, but if you go walk down the street without a mask, now you're a danger to the public and we have to go find you. All right, number two, the Montgomery County Parent Teacher Association in Maryland is pushing a resolution that would defund all student resource officers from public schools. According to a copy, copy of the resolution obtained by the Daily Wire, the Parent Teacher Association is calling on the Montgomery Public County Public School District to discontinue placing police officers on every high school campus. The PTA also calls for the district to reallocate the money spent on student resource officers to mental health services and, quote, restorative justice practices. And then they go on to talk about, um, the, uh, of course, the student resource officers engage in 
bias and discrimination against minority students and students with disabilities. In a separate letter to elementary school parents, PTA President Allison Kozma claimed that student resource officers were also biased against LGBTQ students. I mean, no examples or proof is given, but, well, of course. You know, it's something that we think is bad, and so if they're bad, then they must also be biased against LGBT people. We don't need an example of it. They just are. Comes with the territory of being bad. Now, the thing is, if, if they weren't so set on turning everything into a racial and bigotry situation... There are valid concerns you could raise about having police officers in the school. There, there are valid concerns. Um, one of the concerns is that when a police officer gets involved, it becomes a legal matter. And that's where you find, you know, there have been, we've seen the videos of like eight-year-old kids, um, element, at least elementary school age, at least, just being disruptive in school. And then they get carted away. There have at least been a few cases of this getting carted away in uh, handcuffs and, and arrested. I mean, and this is what happens when you get the police involved. This is what the police do. And that is a concern. I, you know, I'm not a fan of that. I think the schools need security. Every single school, you think about all the, the public school system, that's a government building. You, know, you might not like thinking of it that way if you send your kid into that into the school. You might, not, you might not like to think of it like you're, you're sending your children into a gov- government building for seven hours a day, but you are. And most other government buildings have, have security. You go to the Social Security office, there's going to be an armed guard sitting there to, what, protect papers? I, I, you know, I would think. If it's a government building that has documents that are important or people that are important, like Capitol Hill... Or if it has money or anything like that, then there's going to be armed security. Well, here's a government building with, with our children inside it. And I think our children are more important than all of the previously listed entities. Uh, in fact, I, you know, I, I think it's more important to protect our kids than even politicians. I think we should protect them both. But, but I, I think as a society, our number one priority, period, should be protecting kids. That's our number one. And then everybody else comes after. Me, you, everyone, politicians. So yes, we should have we should have security in these schools, um, but having police officers involved in the normal kind of rule breaking and 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 roughhousing that you find in schools, I think there's a there, there there is an issue with that. Then again, you could argue, well, yeah, but this is this is a government building, and uh, if you don't want the government to handle it like the government does, then maybe you shouldn't send your kid into these schools. So there's a discussion to be had there, but we can't really have that discussion. Because it all has to come down to race and bigotry and discrimination. So the actual point, as always, is missed by a million miles. Um, let's see. Also from the Daily Wire, a Wisconsin middle school placed a small group of teachers on leave after they purchased and distributed a lesson plan that asked 11-year-olds how they would punish slaves. On the first uh, first day of Black History Month, a sixth grader Sixth graders at Patrick Marsh Middle School were asked how they would punish a disobedient slave during an online assignment. According to a screenshot of the, of the classwork obtained, obtained by Newsweek, students were asked to describe how they would punish a slave that said, you are not my master. Here's how the scenario reads. A slave stands before you. This slave has disrespected his master by telling him, you are not my master. How will you punish this slave? The assignment provides a box for students to detail their answers. Now, the, the context here, and we know that context, like we learned yesterday, context doesn't matter at all anymore, um, which means that you just cannot come to fair judgments about anything if context doesn't matter. But if you are one of those crazy, bigoted people who thinks that context still does matter, well, here's the context. Um, they were talking about ancient Mesopotamian laws, and they were describing what the rules were, the unjust rules for slaves. And that's, that was the point. It wasn't like encouraging students to go take slaves and abuse them. It was, it was simply describing what slavery was, going back in history, the ways that it was unjust. That, you, you would think that it's, we want our kids to learn that. That's something the kids should learn. But for all the claims that 
what the you know the left says. Well, we're, this is not we're, we're we're not attacking history. We're not trying to get rid of history. All we're saying is take the monuments down, put them in a museum. This is not an attack on history. No, it is. It is an attack on history. There are entire swaths of not just American history but world history. They simply don't want kids to learn anymore. All right, number four, Representative Maxine Waters, who famously told her supporters to find Trump administration officials and form a crowd and confront them, is now defending herself, saying that she actually has has not contributed to political violence. Even though she said that, she hasn't contributed to political violence, and this is how she defends it. Uh, Let's listen. Already, you have members of your cabinet uh, that are being booed out of restaurants. Who have protesters taking up at their house? Yeah. Who's saying no peace, no sleep, yeah. no peace, no sleep? And guess what? We're gonna win this battle because while you try and quote the Bible, Jeff Sessions and others, you really don't know the Bible. God is on our side, yeah. on the side of the children, on the side of what's right on the side of what's honorable, on the side of understanding that if we can't protect the children, we can't protect anybody. And so let's stay the course. Let's make sure we show up wherever we have to show up. And if you see anybody from that cabinet in a restaurant, in a department store, at a gasoline station, you get out and you create a crowd. And you push back on them. And you tell them they're not welcome anymore, anywhere. Okay, so that's what she said a couple of years ago. And I don't know. Well, in fact, I do know. That's, that sounds like you're encouraging violence. You're, you're, you're telling them to... And this is not just Trump supporters, but administration officials are being encouraged. Or she's encouraged the crowd to, to find them. Form a crowd. Form a crowd and let them know they're not welcome. What? When, when, it, when an angry group of people forms a crowd to uh, communicate to a person that they're not welcome, how, how is that opinion conveyed normally? It, it is always through violence or at least through the threat of violence, through the explicit or implicit threat of violence. So that's what she said. But then she was asked about this uh, yesterday. And uh, here's the defense that she offered. Can you say that you have not glorified or encouraged violence against Republicans? Absolutely, I can say it. As a matter of fact, if you look at the words that I use, the strongest thing I said was tell them they're not welcome. Talk to them. Tell them they're not welcome. I didn't say go and fight. I didn't say anybody was going to have any violence. And so they can't make that stick. So it's as simple as that, really. When you're, I guess when you're a Democrat, all you have to do is you can say something. And this is the great thing about having the media on your side. You can say something, and then your defense is, oh, I didn't say that. Well, but you did. We have it on. No, I didn't say it. Didn't say it. Jedi mind trick. Didn't say it. And then the media moves on. The, the most they'll do is press you one time. Well, but I think you said it because we, no, I didn't. All right. Well, if you say so. It's got to be nice. All right. Number five, finally, a big legal controversy. A woman named Tessica Brown, not Jessica, Tessica is thinking about suing the manufacturers of Gorilla Glue after spraying the glue in her hair um, because uh, uh, she, she didn't have hairspray, I guess, and, and so she sprayed the glue. In fact, here she is explaining. I, I, I'm not going to explain for her. I don't know how this happened, but here is Tessica Brown explaining why she sprayed uh, glue in her hair. Listen. Hey, y'all. For those of y'all that know me know my hair has been like this for about a month now. It's not by choice. No... It's not by choice. When I do my hair, I like to, you know, finish it off with the little got to be glue spray. You know, just to keep it in place. Well, I didn't have any more got to be glue spray, so I used this. Gorilla glue spray. Bad, bad, bad idea. Y'all, look. My hair, it don't move. You hear what I'm telling you? It don't move. I've washed my hair 15 times times and it don't move stiff well Woo. my hair so i'm gonna tell y'all like this if you ever ever run out of got to be glue spray don't ever ever use this that's good advice i'm glad she mentioned that because 
I cannot tell you how many times I have been tempted by the siren song of Gorilla Glue Spray. I mean, we've all been in situations like this. In fact, recently I was in the shower and uh, I didn't have a, a washcloth. So I, I yelled to my wife, said, can you give me a washcloth? And she said, oh, we don't have any washcloths. Uh, they're all in the, the, they're all, they're all dirty, but we, I do have this belt sander. And I said, sure, I'll, I guess I'll use that instead. And it was a mistake. It's very unpleasant to bathe yourself with a belt sander in the shower. Um, so, you know, we all, we all make mistakes sometimes in life. And this is the mistake that she made. Now, she, uh, she, TMZ reports on this story, says, our sources say Tessica, I just like it like they, the sources. They have sources on the story of the, the woman who sprayed glue in her hair. Uh, they've got undercover sources. Our sources say Tessica spent 22 hours in the ER and the staff was dumbfounded. We're told healthcare workers put, uh, you know, did everything they could to get the stuff off her head. But the, what they tried to do, it burned her scalp. It only made the glue gooey before hardening back up. Tessica, we're told, was instructed to keep trying the potential remedy back home, but rubbing alcohol still hasn't provided chlor, uh, a cure. Our sources say that Tessica's uh, now has hired an attorney, and uh, you saw this part coming. She is now weighing her legal options against Gorilla Glue. Uh, and, and here's the thing. So she's going to sue Gorilla Glue because she sprayed it in her hair. And it does say right on the bottle, this is glue. That's what this is. Okay, there's, there's nothing on the bottle that indicates this is for hair. If it said on the bottle, put this in your hair, like some kind of practical joke by the Gorilla Glue people, then I would say, yeah, definitely sue. I mean, even, I don't know, if, 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 um, if you bought it at Walmart or something and, and they put it in the wrong section, they put it in the hairspray aisle, maybe you have a case against Walmart but I don't think that's the case here. So you think to yourself, there's, there's no way she could win this lawsuit, but she, if she doesn't win it, this woman is going to make millions of dollars. Mark my words right now. She is coming out of this thing with minimum six figures, but I'm thinking millions from this because apparently the, um, there is a disclaimer on the back of the, uh, the, the, the can of glue. But the disclaimer says, do not use on eyes, skin, or clothing. That's what it says. Never said anything about hair. And this is the mistake that companies make. Like they, they assumed that even someone dumb enough to spray it in their eyes wouldn't be so dumb as to spray it in their hair. And so they didn't mention that part of it. Or they assumed that everyone is smart enough to kind of connect the dots. Like they thought, well, there's only so many levels of dumb you can be, right? It, you know, most people are smart enough or, or, that they'll see that bottle and just they're not, they know what it is and it's glue. They're not going to spray it on any part of their body. But then they figured, well, if you're, you know, OK, if you're so dumb that you'd even be tempted to spray it and then, and then you, you flip it around, you read the back of the bottle and we say, don't put it on skin, don't put it on eyes, don't put it on clothing. Well, you'll get the you'll get the point at that, you know, at that juncture. You, you, you'll understand. Nobody could be so dumb that even then they still would spray it. But no. There is always someone dumb enough. That is one thing we've learned about society. And uh, so, yeah, I would expect a lot of discomfort, but she's going to get the last laugh here. She's going to have that hard, crusty hair for the rest of her life. She'll never be able to change her hairstyle, but she'll be rich. All right, let's go. Um, let's move on now to our newest and most exciting segment, which is reading the YouTube comments. And this is the segment where I well, read some of the comments under, on, on YouTube from the previous show. So Sinistar says, Matt, did you forget to include the read the comments section? I really enjoyed that edition. I did forget, but mind your own business. All right. Paraconsistent Jojo says this whole episode was, and then there's a fire emoji. And I thank you for that. But you know, my rules about emojis, they're not allowed. So you are banned from listening to the show from this day forward. Unfortunately, I have to enforce the rules. Uh, Gary Teague says, who has the best beard, Matt Walsh or Steven Crowder? Vote now on the Daily Wire or Louder with Crowder. We have nothing else to do. Well, I, you know, look, I, I, I'm not one to uh, puff myself up, but I, I, I think I can say that I have the best beard in conservative media, period. Can't I say that? Who, who else is really even in the running? 
I've had this beard for a long time. Okay. I've been working on this for a long time. I put a lot of, of my heart and soul and energy into this. And so I'm going to claim that title for myself. I think I deserve that much, at least. Um, Nick S. says, now he's reacting to uh, my claim yesterday. You know, there's this, this uh, the reboot of The Equalizer with Queen Latifah as the new action hero. And she's a 50-year-old woman. And, you know, I made the point that it's just sort of hard to take a 50-year-old woman seriously in, a, in, in this, what is supposed to be a gritty, intimidating action hero type of role. And Nick S. has a, a good point. He says, hey, now, Matthew, have we forgotten about Kill Bill? The bride was piss in your boots, effing scary. I think most of us were perfectly willing to dispense with reality while watching that flick. It really depends on how it's done, why it's done, and what message the film is meant to send out. Yeah, so that, that might be one of the only examples that I can think of. There might be a couple others, but there's, that's one example of very few where someone made, uh, Quentin Tarantino in this case, made basically a female action hero who was actually kind of like intimidating. You wouldn't want to mess with her. But it's, it's really hard to do because you, you have to get the tone exactly right. Quentin Tarantino can do it. And so in that, in that really specific, particular kind of Quentin Tarantino cinematic universe, you can do that. But if you're not Quentin Tarantino, what we discovered is it's hard to pull off. And what ends up happening most of the time is that if you're a filmmaker, you're making the show, and you're going for the gritty, intimidating thing, it just ends up being sort of silly. Um, finally, Elena says, I find it interesting and also very telling about our society that cancel culture is basically the exact opposite of confession in the Catholic Church. The sacrament of confession requires one to, out of their own free will and real contrition, privately confess their sins to a priest. Then God, who is one, truly wronged by our sins, forgives, and we go on to do private penance. Our society, however, will perceive an action as, as wrong and use public humiliation to force an apology out of the person, whether they are truly sorry or not. The apology is never accepted and forgiveness is never offered. The person is only forced into a public penance that usually involves a ruined reputation and the loss of opportunities that um, would have otherwise they would have otherwise deserved. It's honestly sick. Bring back Christian forgiveness. Yeah, that's the whole problem with the entire spectacle we talked about yesterday of the, of the public apology that there's no real contrition because the person who's giving the public apology isn't actually sorry. And oftentimes they shouldn't be sorry because what they are being canceled for, um, at least in one of the cases, the, the, you know, the New York Times editor, he used a certain word in a certain context referring to the word. He wasn't using it in a, in a, in a racist context. Um, and he offered the public apology anyway. So whatever the case is, when you're being forced into giving an apology publicly, mo- Almost certainly, you are not giving it because you're actually sorry. You're giving it because you're trying to salvage your reputation. Futilely. It's not going to work. So there's no real contrition. There's no opportunity for forgiveness. Because the people you're apologizing to, they don't care about the apology. They're not even going to listen to it or take it into consideration. Um, so there's, it's just nothing. There's, there's nothing happening there other than this, this pageant, this charade which in the end serves the interests of, of power for the cancel culture mob so they can claim you as a trophy. And that's all that is. Quick word now from our good friends at Rock Auto. You know, we're always looking for the most affordable option, you know, which isn't to say cheap. There's a difference between, especially when you're shopping for auto parts, there's a difference between cheap and affordable. Cheap is, is not always a good thing. That's something that's, gonna, that's, that's not going to work for you. It's going to break down. Um, affordable, you know, that, that's a totally different ballgame. And that's what you get from rockauto.com. You go to rockauto.com, you're going to find all the different parts for your car or truck, and you have access to it. Uh, rockauto.com at your desk, in your pocket. It's so much easier than going into an auto parts store. And what you're going to find from rockauto.com, a family business serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Uh, what you'll find is auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. Best of all, the prices, as I said, are reliably low, very affordable. Uh, but great quality, and you're finding you're going to find whatever it is you're looking for. You're going to find there, and you're going to find it for the best possible price that you could expect. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts that your car will ever need at RockAuto.com. So here's what you need to do: go to RockAuto.com right now, see all the parts available for your car or truck, and remember, please to write Walsh in there. How did you hear about us, box? So they know that we sent you. And also, um, you've heard me talk about our all-access membership before. But for those of you who haven't heard me talk about it, it's our most elite membership tier. These are these are the people that we we love all of our we love we love the whole audience. 
But there are some that we just love a little bit more. Let's be honest. And that's got to be the all access, the elite. Mem- I mean, I'm just speaking for myself here, but um, as an elitist. But the elite membership tiers, all access. Our all access members receive two leftist tiers tumblers when they sign up. And being an all access member means they get to watch full coverage of all Daily Wire shows, not to mention our feature film and soon to come entertainment content, so many other great things. What's more, they get to tune into the exclusive All Access Live, a show featuring a different Daily Wire host every day, a casual conversation, which is a lot of fun. So today, we want to publicly thank all of our All Access members for their commitment to the Daily Wire and to show our appreciation. We are mailing out a special anniversary tumbler for all renewing All Access members this year. And this is the tumbler. Without the damn sloth, once again. Um, on the front, you've got the classic leftist tiers, and on the back, all of our signatures as well. Um, the main thing you want to focus on, though, is the, uh, the Matt Walsh signature right there. And oh, yeah, the other guys, too. We got all that. And also a short statement about our belief that America's best days are still ahead of us. I don't know if I really actually believe that. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll write or may, maybe I'll write we're doomed on a few of the cups and we'll send those out, too. Um, I'm not really going to do that, but this is a commemorative piece for our five-year journey, and thank you to all of our All Access members in particular for supporting who we are and what we do. So make sure you renew your membership and get your All Access, uh, your, uh, your new Leftist Tears Tumblr now. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. Now today for our daily cancellation, I'm afraid that we must go once again and plunge the depraved depths of the cyber sewage dump known as TikTok. I've been accused of leaning too heavily on TikTok for my cancellations. But first of all, again, mind your own business. Second of all, there's, there's just a lot of intentionally, unintentionally, not intentionally, but unintentionally hilarious stuff there. And third, this is the app that the kids are using and being influenced by. So at a certain point, we have to stop with this really kind of foolish thing of acting like the content that our kids, not my kids, but a lot of people's kids, spend hours a day ingesting is somehow frivolous and unimportant. It may be stupid, it may be embarrassing, but it's not frivolous because because it's what's helping to shape the next generation for better or worse, and in this case, worse. With that said, we have to cancel a guy named Ryan McCartan, um, or Ryan McCarran, one of the two. Anyway, he has a huge following on TikTok and apparently is an actor or something, and uh, there's one video in particular that puts him in line to be canceled today, but going through his catalog, as I did, it seems that many TikTok users come to him for advice and wisdom, and he's eager to offer it. So as an example of that, here's a, here's a recent video where he gives his mind-blowing, totally unique perspective on the abortion debate. You're not going to believe this. Listen. So there are three parts of this conversation to me, the science of abortion, the history of abortion, and the debate about abortion. I want to talk about the debate right now, but let me know if you want to hear the other stuff. The debate about abortion is, are you pro-choice or pro-life? And that just sets up a false dichotomy because the opposite of pro-life is anti-life. No one is anti-life. And we aren't actually talking about life. We're talking about birth. So then the debate would be pro-birth or anti-birth, and that doesn't make any sense either. So you go back to our original terms, choice. I think that's what the debate is about. Are you pro-choice or are you anti-choice? And the thing that just really bothers me about this argument, A, is that liberals have succumbed to this idea of arguing with a pro-life stance when we're not talking about life, we're talking about choice. But also, the conservative thinking in America is all about limiting government to not step in on our individual liberties to make our own choices about our lives. So I don't understand why liberals and conservatives aren't actually on the same page about this. The government should not make any choices about what we do with our individual liberties regarding our own bodies, no matter who we are, what we look like, or what our bodies do. Wow. Wow. Just incredible. So so, so he, he wants to, let me see if I got this correctly. He wants to reframe the debate as pro-choice or anti-choice. I have never heard that before. I mean, this, this has completely altered the way I view this issue. I have simply never heard someone make the anti-choice point before. It's, it's amazing. I, no one's ever said this. That's why this guy's so proud of himself when he makes this point. You know, I've been thinking about this. And I think this is about choice. Huh? This man is a philosopher for the ages. If Socrates came across this guy, Socrates would poison himself again just because he's so depressed that he'll never be as smart and insightful as Ryan McCartan or McCarran. All that said, Um, Yes, actually, the issue is about life. The fundamental question is whether the baby in the womb is a human life and whether as a human life it has the same moral worth and is therefore entitled to the same legal protections as a born person. Now, I say yes. If Ryan McCartan says no, 
He should explain why his answer is no. But people on the anti-life side rarely want to defend that part of their argument. Now, as for the government not telling us what to do with our bodies, well, okay then. So I assume you're an avid anti-masker in that case. That's the government telling you what to do with your, with your body. Oh, but that's different, you say. It's different because if you don't wear a mask, you could harm somebody else. Ah, okay. So, so, so you can do what you want with your body up to the point where you're potentially inflicting harm on another person. Hmm. Well, the unborn human who is poisoned, dismembered, or decapitated through the course of the abortion, I mean, would you say that qualifies as harm? Oh, but that's different, you say, because the unborn human doesn't count. Well, what do you know? We're right back to a debate about life and its definition, which, which is exactly what you said the debate is not about. But it turns out that is what the debate is always about. It can't be about anything else. So that's Ryan McCartan on abortion. Now let's hear what he has to say about racism. I am the oppressor. I am racist. Oh my God, he just said he's racist. It shouldn't be this hard, you guys. If you live in America, went to school, participate in the socioeconomic structures, participate in any sort of system, education, business, entertainment, what have you, and you are white, you are indoctrinated, you are oppressive, and yes, you are racist. It is something that we have learned, either consciously or subconsciously, all of us as white Americans. And what we have to do is unlearn that. I'm trying to do the work. Part of doing the work is pushing against dangerous narratives that are counterintuitive to that unlearning, like white people are also oppressed by racism. We're not. We are the oppressors. That's the point. You should be doing the unlearning too. Do the work. I love this guy's dance moves, the choreography while he makes his point. I don't know what all this, you can't see it if you listen to the audio podcast, but he's got this certain move that he does. He's like, it's like, it's like watching NSYNC or something in the nineties. It's all the, all the, all the choreography. But, um, First of all, if I live my whole life and never again hear the phrase do the work from somebody who does not appear to have ever done any kind of work at all in their lives, um, I will die a happy man. Second, I'm not going to spend a lot of time debunking this notion that only white people are racist because only they have systemic power, yada, yada, et cetera. I've addressed that many times. And as I've explained, it is built on numerous false assertions, starting with the idea that power has anything necessarily to do with racism and also the idea that only white people have systemic power. We can look around right now and see every major corporation bending over backwards to affirm the most radical tenets of BLM orthodoxy. We can see that the same is true of politicians and bureaucrats and almost everybody who wields serious power in this country. We can also see that the only form of explicit racial systemic bias that's allowed in this country is the kind that cuts against white people like affirmative action. All of that is clear. So um, this from Ryan McCartan and those like him is nothing but a doctrinal statement. It's not based on any kind of evidence or logic, except an internal logic within the critical race theory cult. And even there, internally, there isn't much logic to it. Just remember, anytime somebody says, only white people can be racist, all you have to do is respond with one question. This is what I would respond to. Says who? Oh, only white people can be racist. Okay? Says who? Who says that? You do, but where are you getting that from? Why should I accept your definition of racism? I understand that that's your claim, that's your belief, but why should I give a damn? Why should I believe it? And I guess if you want to follow up with another question, you could also ask this. Did racism exist a thousand years ago? Two thousand years ago? Three thousand years ago? Did it exist in ancient times? Did racism exist back when people were slaughtering and enslaving outsiders just as a matter of course? Because, because if, if racism is inherent to white people because of their systemic power, then it must mean that racism didn't exist before white people as we know them now existed or before they had this kind of power. I mean, I mean you go back through history and um, you find that the most powerful empires back in ancient times were in places like Egypt and Mesopotamia. Was there no racism then? Was it an anti-racist utopia which just so happened to subsist on slavery and conquest? So that's a question you could ask. But what I want to focus on is, uh, is something else at a deeper level is the guilt. You know, I've long suspected that one of the things that makes this all white people are racist idea appealing is the way that it explains and channels guilt. Now, for non-white people, the appeal is pretty straightforward. They're absolved of racism permanently, and they're positioned as the automatic good guy in any dispute with a white person. That's a hell of a deal if you can get it. 
But for white people, part of the appeal, I think, is, is religious in nature. You know, what is it that, that will oftentimes, you think about it, what, what, what will oftentimes get a person to go to church after a long time away? They're feeling burdened by their sin, feeling guilty. They're looking for absolution, for something to, they, they want something to do with this guilt that they're carrying around. But with theistic religion receding, and with many of the remaining churches too afraid to talk about guilt and sin anyway, things like critical race theory step into the gap. Jesus says, come to me, all who are burdened, and I will give you rest. Well, those who are burdened and not going to Jesus have to go somewhere else. CRT, critical race theory, is a substitute for some people. Only, it's not going to offer rest or absolution. Instead, it just offers more guilt. But at least it explains and clarifies the guilt, or claims to. It puts everything in racial terms and gives confused and desperate people a framework for understanding themselves and their own internal struggles. The framework is wrong and evil, but hey, at least it's a framework. To paraphrase the Big Lebowski. All that said, the, the other possible explanation, so that, I mean, all that, is, maybe that's why, if I want to go to at a real deep, like psychological and philosophical level, uh, maybe that's why someone like Ryan McCartan is so eager to call himself racist. Maybe. The other possible exp- explanation for why Ryan McCartan says he's racist is that he's actually racist. I mean, that is what he's saying. Maybe we should just take him seriously. Maybe when a white person gets up and says, I'm racist, we should just say, oh, okay, well, sorry to hear about that. And then when he says, yeah, but all of you are too, we, we say, no, not me. I don't know, man. Speak for yourself. Uh, you already said it. You've, 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 cl- you've made your claim. I, I'm not joining you. I'm, I'm not giving you any cover here. So hate, hate to hear about that. I'm sorry. Shouldn't be racist. That sucks, man. I, you know, thanks for telling us. Just because you are doesn't mean that I am, Ryan. Speak for yourself. And maybe in the end, maybe, maybe that is the one needed response to the critical race theory cultists. Speak for yourself. Also, you're canceled. So those two things. And that's going to do it for us today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Walsh Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producers are Mathis Glover and Robert Sterling. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Vodosky. The show is edited by Danny D'Amico. Our audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is done by Nika Geneva. And our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021. Athletes vie for the title of greatest of all time. Mitt Romney proposes an entitlement program that many conservatives love. And even a Democrat senator admits the impeachment trial may not be legit. Check it out on The Michael Knowles Show.